0: Headquarters to all units. Headquarters to all units. All units, stand by for On Patrol with the PPD, airing now on WTBR 89.7 FM.
1: Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to another new episode of On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 89.7 FM, Pittsfield Community Radio, simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television. Today is Friday, October 22nd, 2021. My name is Mike Wynn. I am both one of the co-hosts and co-producers sometimes I haven't been here in a while of this purportedly weekly radio program I'm also the chief of police here in the city of Pittsfield Massachusetts I'm joined in studio this morning by cops bureau commander lieutenant Gary Traversa sound engineer extraordinaire good morning Gary morning chief good morning everybody and uh, we also have a couple special guests in studio this morning who will introduce uh, after the intro but let's start with the check of the weather and then I'm going to talk about a couple notable news items and then we'll get into the program
2: I make sure'
1: WTBR
3: radar weather for the Pittsfield area. Today, mostly cloudy. Near steady temperature in the mid 50s. West wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tonight, mostly cloudy. Cooler with lows in the upper 30s. Northwest wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Saturday, mostly cloudy in the morning, then becoming partly sunny. Highs in the lower 50s. Northwest wind around 5 miles per hour. Weather forecasts for WTBR-FM are provided by the National Weather Service.
1: All right, fall is here. The leaves are changing. The temperatures are getting cooler, Lieutenant. I feel like I haven't been here in forever. I know it's only been a couple of weeks, but yeah, time goes by quick when you're busy. Lot, lots of mileage in the last couple of weeks. Let's um, let's look at a couple news items. I want to start off with one that I think everybody has been eagerly anticipating. Um, you know, it's just in in the ongoing reality that is the response to the global pandemic Uh, youth you know youth uh, under age 12 finally getting some clearance and the commonwealth is taking the examples set by uh, many regions including us in the last year and rolling out a regional vaccination plan they've identified 700 sites for children to begin uh, receiving vaccine when the vaccine gets delivered Um, you know i think that given everything that we had to put into building out the eoc and the coordinating center last year um, you know there's there's a really good blueprint in place and i just think that that's a great sign you know if all school age children can be vaccinated uh, we're well on well on our way to kind of uh moving through this thing Couple police-related stories. Uh, you can check this morning's Berkshire Eagle. We can't get into a ton of details about these things. They're still pending, uh, actively investigation under active investigation. But uh, we did respond to a shot spotter activation. Shots fired on uh, early Thursday morning. No injuries reported. This one's, you know, again, can't get any details. It's a little bit interesting. Uh, the subjects who reside at the residence that we believe are targeted are known to us we've um, we've investigated them in the past still trying to figure out the motive um but you know ground sign evidence recovered at the scene at least two weapons involved in that more likely than not um so more to come on that also crime related um uh, i lost my page here sorry uh r- structure fire and uh the, Eagle, you know, we confirmed the Eagles reported that one arrest was made in relation to the structure fire. But I think the the more important lead is six residents were displaced as a result of this. That investigation is very fresh, very new. Um, So more to come on that as we and the fire investigators and the state fire marshal develop more. Not related to um, Pittsfield, uh, but also crime related. Uh, The FBI was in Great Barrington uh, executing a search warrant on a dermatologist's office. I've done a lot of cases, supported a lot of cases when our drug unit works with the FBI and or the DEA with uh, medical providers, particularly uh, prescription providers. I don't know that I've ever heard of a search warrant being executed on a dermatologist's office. Um, So I'm interested to see where that goes. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting times. It's always something new. All right. So, uh I have been on the road for a good portion of this week. I was at Chiefs in Service out in Norwood and maybe if we have time at the end of the program, we'll talk a little bit about what that was like and kind of what um what we 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 rolled out because all of our troops will be seeing these in service topics in the next uh in the next training year. So more to come on that. But I don't want to get into that now because we do have guests in studio. We are joined this morning by uh, key members of our public safety team, our mental health co-responders, crisis responders. Uh, We have Ariel and Tessa in studio this morning. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. You're going to have to get a little closer to the mic for that. Good morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so we were talking a little bit okay, I'm losing track of time. I know I was in Monday. It had to be last week before I left. Um, so you're coming up on a year with us now, right? Yeah, just about. about. And Tesla, it's what, four months, five yes. months? And so co-responder program in the Pittsfield Police Department, uh, six years old now, um, the brainchild and kind of the conceptual um, idea of your predecessor, Mr. Richard Collins, who was a valuable member of our team, and we were sorry to see him go, but we're happy to have both of you. Um, And it's had a remarkable impact on how we deal with situations in the field, particularly uh, a reduction in the number of transports by cruiser to the hospital for people who are involved in crisis but there's no criminal intent Uh, we can get into some of the details of why that's important to police officers and to me as a chief Um, but every one of those transports is is a is a potential liability so every one of those we don't have to make is is a big deal Uh, but before we got on the air this morning i was sharing with you that while i was at in service i was talking to uh, Deputy Chief Gordon from Greenfield, as well as several of my colleagues. Based on the model established here, uh, Greenfield and Deerfield have now replicated it. It's a slightly different structure, but they basically took our model and they've replicated it. So they've got that going in those two communities. And three chiefs from the Northampton Hadley area who heard our conversation are going to contact their crisis provider, CSO, and replicate it in three communities uh, outside of Northampton. So the work that you're doing here is like a stone in the pond. It's starting to have a expanding ripple effect. So it's well beyond Pittsfield now.
4: That's great to hear.
1: Yeah. So once again, we're out there leading the way. So let's talk about the program a little bit because uh, you've actually you've actually expanded it um, in expand pivoted it a little bit because Richard's background and experience was largely. In mental health crisis, and that's what the program was originally conceived to deal with, and I'm not going to say everyone, but a lot of his deployments had to do specifically with that but Ariel, you have a background in substance abuse as well so correct. so you've kind of um you've kind of taken on like a second set of clients here as you've done this, <laughs> so talk about that a little bit.
4: I have. Um, so, I mean, it's really, I'm sure, common knowledge, certainly to the department, to you, and unfortunately, probably to most community members, that um, our, our town is no different than anywhere else in America at this point, and uh, is suffering deeply with the opioid crisis, and it is so tongue and grooved into the mental health crisis. Um, very seldomly do we see one without the other. It does happen, but typically these these are co-occurring. And um, To watch our community suffering the way it is, I felt like this position with these resources was a really great way to address that to the best of my ability in this role. Um, so we do a lot of education and advocacy, so a lot of times if we hear a call on the radio that involves substance use I'll hop on I'll say I'm gonna respond advise of treatment options um, and sometimes people take it and sometimes they don't but just because they don't take it in the moment doesn't mean that it's not information they didn't have before doesn't mean the wheels aren't turning um, and so kind of starting that thought process making sure people know they have options walking them through that All
1: Right. so We could take this conversation in so many different directions, but I think before we kind of see where this goes, I want to rewind the clock a little bit. Um, So I'm going to start with Ariel, and then I'm going to switch to Tessa. Just tell us a little bit about yourselves, you know, where you're from, how you got into uh, counseling and crisis response work, what attracted you to working with the PD. We'll start with you.
4: Okay, so I, um, I'm originally from South Florida. I'm a transplant um, of sorts, and um, I started my education here at Berkshire Community College, graduated from there, went on to Elms. Um, my mom lives in New Jersey, and she said, hey, why don't you apply to Rutgers? And I agreed to apply and go if I got in. I never thought I'd get in. I was certain of it, and then came... Then came the acceptance letter, <laughs> and I was like, well, all right, I guess I guess we're doing this. Um, so I hold a master's degree from Rutgers University in social work, um, kind of with the idea that if I could be a social worker in Newark, New Jersey, I could be a social worker anywhere. And um, I decided ultimately to come home. I felt like the community um, needed the resources, needed the support, I wanted to make a difference. Um, and so I came home, and so I'm here. So I, I live in Pittsfield. Um, I've lived here now for about three years. And what attracted me to the PD was the deep sense that social workers belonged in police departments. And I don't think that you get to say things and then not be about them. So I wanted my actions to match my belief system. And it felt like a way to step into a position, create some change. Um, And I think that there's something really powerful and humbling about being with people sometimes in the worst moments of their life. And if there's something that I can do in that moment, be it as small as it may be, um, I feel incredibly honored and uh, humbled to be able to do that.
1: So before you switched over and came into crisis response with us, you were in residential, right?
4: That is correct. I was the clinical supervisor for the Men's Keenan House um, for nearly two years before I came here. Um, And so that was kind of an introduction into um, substance use here in Berkshire County treatment. Provided, um, I am the daughter of two addicts. My mom was able to find recovery. My dad has not. Um, so there's been a, a deep sense of compassion and empathy and understanding, just instilled in me from the beginning. Um, you know, one of the things my mom always told me was, "Good people do bad things sometimes," and that understanding and, and wanting to help was kind of just part of part of my world.
1: So before we switch to Tessa, um, it, thank you for sharing. You know, it's that's incredibly brave. So i've been studying a little bit and recently through both some of my academic work and through a book that i was just reading to kind of and you know enhance myself professionally i came across this theory that for in this particular case people in uniform service but it would apply right, that not all of us but in many cases people who come to service professions um, come from a background where they were exposed to trauma right? mm-hmm. and so for whatever that Whatever that driving motivation was, and you know, I've talked on the show in the past about like the work that I do to protect my mental health. Uh, it wasn't until I was well in, into like mental health treatment that I could confront some of the stuff that I grew up with, um, which was frightening because it it was way way in the past and I had ignored it for a long long time. But it's interesting that um, because of your upbringing that you would find yourself ultimately, you know trying to assist people who have similar challenges, so good for you. Thank you. All right, Tessa, tell us about yourself.
5: My name is Tess. Thank you all for listening. This is new experience for me. So I come by my work in mental health on a unique path. So I was in graduate school actually in international relations and wound up in Asia working uh, with the UNHCR in refugee camps and in that process, I decided that I did not want to be, I won't say a, <laughs> an administrator, or a bureaucrat, or a paper pusher, but I, I wanted to work with
1: human beings. I won't take that personally.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to work with human beings face-to-face and humans that needed um, whatever alleviation of their suffering that I could provide in that moment. Um, so I came back and dropped out of one grad program and applied to another so I wound up in the social work program at Smith College um and actually my first internship in grad school was with the crisis team in Pittsfield and Richard Collins who founded the co-responder program was my supervisor and and trained me um from there I've spent over a decade in schools and I think there was a moment um around COVID around the pandemic around what I felt like was a a political moment in in mental health and in policing where i said my calling is to go back into the field and to respond and support human beings in crisis and also working in education um, kids were suffering and they were suffering in ways you know there's always ways that that young people are facing demons are facing pain but watching Young people during the pandemic and watching the lack of resources for them when they hit a real crisis point, um, my heart said, "Go out there and and try to be the person that when they are um, in their lowest moment, that you're you're there." Um, and uh, and I don't know. I think the pull is around that that trauma moment, that lowest moment that you're referring to, and and what it means to have someone there um, who is who was trained in mental health and trained in kind of immediate uh, trauma-informed response.
1: All right, so before we get on with the, like, the actual content of the day, I have to pull this thread because I'm not sure how I went through your application materials on in an interview and I didn't pick up on this, but refugee camps? How many refugee camps?
5: So I, I worked with a nonprofit out of the U.K. that was working with the Tibetan refugee community in... Um, Both Nepal and India so I I spent time in both areas how long it was about six months over the winter of 2003 2004
1: that's that's an incredibly brave commitment for a young woman
5: (laughs) yeah you you bless my parents for whatever flaws they also have (laughs) they let me take a one-way ticket um, to Kathmandu
1: Wow all right.
5: It wasn't the first one-way ticket I had to Asia, so they were a little bit—they <laughs> were a little bit used to me leaving. But yeah, it was—it was a remarkable. Um, actually, Berkshire County Community Foundation put grant money into my trip.
1: That's awesome. Cool. All right. So we learned a little bit about you, and we've kind of talked in the on the program. We have talked on the program in the past about how the how the co-responder model. Tactically functions on the day-to-day and we can get more into that after the break, but let's um When the time that we have before we have to break, let's kind of uh, Set up how we got here. So For most of my career and lieutenant's career and jump in here on any like calls that you recall with that you recall um, due to changes that had occurred certainly you know during the 70s and 80s but even during the mid 90s when i started my law enforcement career if someone was in crisis for a non no no crime in the picture uh, you know other than maybe disturbing the peace loud noise and stuff like that they were in crisis and they clearly were experiencing a mental health episode or mental health incident or they were under the influence of something uh and it was on the weekend or you know Nighttime hours, generally speaking, there was going to be one response and it was going to be multiple police officers. And we had some really good officers that I've worked with over my career. And we had some highly trained officers, even officers that have been trained in crisis intervention team training. Uh, but the reality is, at the end of the day, they're police officers. And so we had a couple options. If If it crossed the threshold, if there was a disorderly conduct or disturbing the peace, we could arrest them, right? But now we're criminalizing non-criminal behavior. We're we're putting a charge on somebody who needs help. And that was a tool that was available to us. And in all honesty, it's a tool we used quite a lot because the other options didn't necessarily pan out. Um, The second option available to us is we could sign what is called a section 12 we could we could do an involuntary order of commitment and there's only three people identified in the statute that can sign a section 12. a doctor a judge or a police officer but in my experience when a police officer signed a section 12 the doctors and the judges got kind of annoyed and uh generally if they didn't agree 100 percent with our assessment the response was to just release the person. So we'd get them to the hospital and they'd simply uncuff them and let them go. The only other option was to get them to the crisis team. Now we could get them to the crisis team under a 12 or we could you know, do back in, we would call it the voluntary transport. So we talked them into a ride, right? But the problem when we talked them into a ride is at any point during that transport or post arrival at the hospital, they could withdraw their voluntary consent and just leave. So none of, those, none of those three options was ideal. And in many cases, what would happen is we would deal with somebody, get them to the hospital, they'd be back out on the street. Next shift would deal with them, get them to the hospital. Next shift, they'd be back out on the street. Next shift would deal with them, check the history. Said so this is the third time in 14 hours, you're under arrest. At least then we knew they were going to be held somewhere uh, mm-hmm. until we could get them to court or get them uh, held on bail. And in many cases, then we could have a member of the crisis team come do an evaluation at headquarters. But even that's not ideal. They're locked up. They've got this looming criminal charge. They may not have the capacity to deal with the looming criminal charge. And we all know that you you catch a charge, you don't go to court, now you get arrested on the warrant. That stuff is cumulative. Uh, And so just burying people who really need help in in the system. Uh, And so... I don't even know how long ago, I want to say in my last conversation with Chris McBath, the Commonwealth changed the law like almost 12 years ago. And essentially what they said is, the mental health providers for each county have to provide field resources to law enforcement. We have to stop this. And so they changed the law, but they didn't provide any funding. It's <laughs> <laughs> always the way. So, um, the Brean Center is our mental health provider, and they were supposed to the, they were supposed to assist us with these field deployable resources. They just didn't have them, right? It just, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a capacity they had and didn't come with any funding. So about six years ago, Richard decides, you know, the law changed. This is what we're supposed to be doing. We haven't been doing it. And he decides he's going to do it. He just pretty much decides, uh, listen, I, I don't even know what his job was before that. I was sitting in my office. Lieutenant Bradford came up and he's like, there's this guy downstairs. He's from the Brien Center. He wants to come work with us. We're Okay (laughs) And it it really started like that quickly and simply right so Jeff uh, Jeff sets up a meeting we we meet Richard and Now we got to build this thing on the fly Uh, and so And I'd like both of you to kind of speak to this point So uh, social workers are amazing like I, I have you know had social workers in my life most of my professional life They're amazing people. I could never do what what you all do but Many social workers, one, they don't want to work with the crisis population. And even the ones who do choose to work with the crisis population in in the crisis team setting don't want to be in the field. It, it's a unique mindset for somebody who's attracted to social work to also want to kind of be out there on the, on the pointy end. So, why?
4: <laughs> so, for, I mean, what attracted to me was a few things. Um, what is that, you know, for a long time I wanted to be a police officer, so my grandfather who is the person that I love, respect, cherish the most in this world, other than my son um, it was a police officer and then the chief of police and he worked in the prison system, and so I thought I wanted to do what he did and at about maybe 12 I said, wait a minute grandpa what's going on that they got to you? Hold on, hold on here something went wrong before this Um, And that's when I kind of started to think about how can we intervene with people before they're in handcuffs and before that's happening. Um, And and I've I've done crisis work in a lot of capacities, Hillcrest Ed for a long time, kind of those moments, um, again, where people are at their worst and and how, in that moment, how people respond ultimately impacts the long-term outcome and this kind of seemed like an opportunity to do that. Um, I also, I hate to be bored. I like when no two days are the same. Um, I don't want to know what's coming. I want to be on the fly. And it requires us to know and and really be experts about so many things because we see kids, we see adults, we see geriatric patients, we see people with substance abuse and mental illness and, and both and sometimes neither and they're just having a bad day. Um, and it, so it requires us to Really be very dynamic and and on the fly, and I find that I operate best in those situations.
1: How about you, Tess
4: i I agree
5: in the sense that there's I love to learn and I love to engage in new experiences and um, continue to grow as a professional but I, that sounds very kind of selfish in terms of motivations it's it's a piece of that in that I, I think that I have the capacity to continue to kind of flex and expand um, on a daily basis, and I, and I want that. But I, I, I think there's a piece, um, after I think it was 12 years kind of being in more private um, long-term care settings and educational settings, um, that I was drawn back out um, into the world of, of community and crisis. Um, I think the biggest draw for me is that suicide is deeply close to me in terms of family and lost family and knowing that there could have been someone someone who could have potentially reached people that i loved someone who could have arrived to them um, and calmed them and connected them to resources um, it continues to pull me to that to that edge in terms of where people are ready to give up living and and hoping that across the country there can be somebody who is trained who can give them, the words or the moment or the space to breathe where they can, they can choose to go, another minute or another day.
1: And and I just want to so I was when I was at end service, uh, we we heard I heard for the second time this compelling story. I'll get into it after the break, um, about you know some a uh, police officer who lost a family member to suicide and the point that you just said that it it really is a moment or a space right just an intervention that's the briefest moment in time can be enough in right then right i mean there'll be more down the road but that can be the change um and you know i think people believe that uh you know i want to do something but i can't do enough anything is enough anything in that moment is enough um yeah, I just so let's we got a we got a break in a few minutes here. But just kind of before we go to the station break, let's talk briefly about it, how the program functions, how how you're embedded in operations.
5: Absolutely. So I, I am not the senior co-responder here on the.
1: We created content. a new title this morning.
5: <laughs> yes, Ariel is our senior co-responder.
1: Apparently, she delegated. Co- <laughs> <Yeah>. Co-responder sergeant.
0: <laughs> she is sergeant.
5: So, y- at, in the morning, depending on our shift, we have a day that Ariel and I overlap in terms of case consultation and and mutual kind of information sharing but we will report to the police station in the morning we will call into dispatch and let them know we're now referred to as the 950s which sounds somewhat like the Rockettes and like we should have dance numbers but we have a call <laughs> we're working no, on it we have a call the number call what i'm referring sign, yep. to is a call sign um that both of our our numbers are in the 900 so we've gotten that that name um and then from there whether officers will At times during the day come down to consult about a a call that they've been on or we will be dispatched over the radio by radio to join officers um, on a call in the community and there will be moments and i've noticed this in myself as we become more familiar with community members who might be in need of support um, we we will also identify and and ask to join the call so calls can come to us in a variety of ways from follow-up to emergency
1: so just a a couple quick points because when i was at norwood uh, a couple other departments asked me this so assigned to the station that that is your that that is your assignment you're headquartered out of there uh unfortunately you know essentially at a table in the back of our roll call room (laughs) um, provided with our radios is working on the the police frequency as a as a first responder and uh as you said assigned a call sign and so either dispatched like, you know, 201, 202, 205, 951. Um, boom, go. There's something going on. Or because with a year's experience and coming up on four months, you're starting to figure out the the lingo and the pace. I can provide value there, so answer up and say, put me on that call. Um, travel to your calls independently right not not co-located in a cruiser like some other departments have done particularly with the cit model um which gives us a little more flexibility and and the agility to pivot and either get you right to the scene or stage you back depending on if this is not an impending crisis or it's something a little less uh risky and um and and then following up on your you you, like there's an element of case management in this Uh, and so you may deal with somebody on a monday and then you've got a little time you're not answering a radio call so maybe wednesday go back and, and just see you know where they are in response to that initial offer and so um you know the the tangible benefit is a lot of those people I was talking about earlier that the lieutenant or I would have put in handcuffs and either drag, dragged down to the hospital or put in our cell, uh, you're able to keep them in the community. You're able to keep them home. And, again, it's it's a way for us to not criminalize non-criminal intent. Right? There are good people do bad things. There are people who are acting in a particular way not because they they want to harm anyone or that they're looking to to you know steal anything damage anything they just can't stop they can't help themselves and so if we can intervene in that moment get through that moment of crisis and then by either referring them somewhere or following up with them in the community the police may not have to may not have to have that contact again we can divert them into the resources they need. That's just better for everybody. We can talk about some of the specifics about why that's better for the department and the city when we come back, Uh, but it's certainly better for the patient. It's it's better for our partners who may not have gotten these cases under the previous model, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and it's better for our our personnel and our agency. we there, Lieutenant, we are. I went over. It's time for a station break. Another check of the weather, a couple PSAs. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back on the other side of the break.
2: The
3: WTBR radar weather for the Pittsfield area. Today, mostly cloudy. Near steady temperature in the mid-50s. West wind 5 to 10 mph. Tonight, mostly cloudy. Cooler with lows in the upper 30s. Northwest wind 5 to 10 mph. Saturday, mostly cloudy in the morning, then becoming partly sunny. Highs in the lower 50s. Northwest wind around 5 mph. Weather forecasts for WTBR-FM
2: are provided by the National Weather Service. Support for WTBR comes from Project New Hope's Westfield office second annual Veterans Stuff the Van Thanksgiving food drive. You can drop food items or $15 grocery store gift cards at PCTV for Federico Drive in Pittsfield by November 5th. For full details, visit ProjectNewHopeMA.org. UCP of Western Massachusetts is hiring. If you'd like to help people with different abilities lead independent lives, apply at UCPWMA.org jobs. We need direct support professionals and clinicians. Join the agency who's reimagining independence.
1: Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in to this morning's episode of On Patrol with the P P D here on WTBR eighty nine point seven FM Community Pittsfield Radio, simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television. If you're just joining us today is Friday, October twenty second. My name is Mike Winner I'm the chief of police here in the city of Pittsfield. I'm joined in studio this morning by Lieutenant Gary Traversa. Lieutenant, you're getting a pass on this. You've been very quiet over there this morning.
0: I hey. I need to be so that all the information <laughs> comes from these the guests. <laughs> We're
1: also joined in studio this morning by our department's mental health co responders, Ariel and Tess. Thanks for joining us this morning, ladies.
4: Thanks for having us. Good morning.
1: I just realized I'm in trouble. So we have to go back to your bio, Ariel. You started your education at Berkshire Community College. That is correct. Shout out to Berkshire Community College. Yes.
4: Absolutely. I get points at home again. Right
1: <laughs> <laughs> Every time I mention BCC on the air, I get Extra points at home.
4: Okay, fair, yeah.
1: fair. All right. So we were talking about the co-responder model, how you're embedded in the department, and how you kind of um, either are dispatched or, based on you know your perception, hearing what's going on, you you volunteer and self-initiate. And then I I followed up with the fact that as a result of that, patients who. You know, in our in-service block, we now have to refer to them as subjects, Lieutenant. Patients um, who previously would have been handcuffed and transported are able to be safely left in the community. And so, well, I, you know, I say that, and if for our viewers and listeners at home, you're like, all right, they get to stay at home, what's the big deal? Look, from a police point of view, from a law enforcement point of view, Every time we involuntarily take somebody into custody, whether it be under arrest, or protective custody due to incapacitation due to alcohol or drugs, or for purposes of mental health, every time we take somebody into custody, we put them in handcuffs, we're exposed to a high degree of risk and liability. As as an agency, right? There is risk, and in some cases, danger. And if they're in serious crisis, significant risk and danger. So. The mere act of putting them in handcuffs may may escalate the crisis. Uh, the Police Advisory Review Board, which was created several years ago, one of the incidents that led to the creation of the PARB in its current, uh, in, in its current version was a section 12, a, a court-ordered section 12, we had to execute it, that resulted in somebody being handcuffed. And it was at the point of being handcuffed that this person decided, you know, you can't take me to the hospital. You can't make me. Well, yes, we can, and we did, uh, and it didn't go well. Right? So uh, there's there's a risk and an exposure there. Putting him in the cruiser, there's a risk and an exposure there. If we can't get him to the hospital, and we have to put him in a cell. There's a high degree of risk and exposure there. We are not a medical facility. We're a temporary detention facility. We don't have medical staff. Well, we, now, we have some EMTs now, but we don't have medical staff beyond the first responder level on staff, so there's a delay of care if we have to call for an ambulance. If you've never worked in law enforcement or corrections, you may not understand. Other than like active fights in the field, Detention is the most high liability thing we do. The exposure to the subject is very, very high. The exposure to the officers is very, very high. The exposure to the organization is very, very high. So every time we can avoid putting somebody in handcuffs and putting them in a cell, that's a a protective measure for the agency and for the city. In the first couple years that Richard was on with us, he drove our mental health transports either to the hospital or to the station down by 60%. A 60% reduction in involuntary transports. You can't put value on that, right? Six out of 10 people that we would have rolled around with or handcuffed stayed in the community. That's, it's better for the patient's outcome. Mm It's better for the people who are going to be working with that subject, because let's be honest, the handcuffing in the transport is an additional trauma, Absolutely. right? So now the clinicians don't have to deal with this newest trauma, and we're not putting that person in a cell where, God help us, if it's, a, if it's a dual prison, you know, they're mentally ill and under the influence of something, they're medically compromised there's a lot of risk in putting that person in a cell so we can keep them in the community safely this is better all around and of course from a humanitarian point of view it's the best possible outcome but when you're looking at it from where i sit at you know risk management for the agency this was a no-brainer every one of those people that doesn't cross the threshold into our into our facility is a win so Thank you for what you do.
4: (laughs) Thank you for having us. You know, and it's it's funny because I was having this conversation with somebody the other day um, in regards to responding and police and having social workers and and the dynamic. Um, And I had said, you know, even if you're on scene and something is, is unfolding and the best officer in the world shows up, if the best officer in the world shows up, but I have an amputated arm from a car accident, I don't want an officer, I need medical attention. And so same with mental illness, right? Is you could have the best officer in the world in front of you, but you need a different kind of treatment. And to be able to provide that, and like you said, keep people from not only from a risk management standpoint being involved with law enforcement, but if you can spare them an unnecessary trip to the hospital beyond the handcuffing beyond the being in a cruiser that's a whole nother level of trauma in and of itself you know you're you're in a locked part of the hospital um oftentimes more often than not you have to um get undressed and put a robe on and for people who have experienced trauma that can be very difficult you're then sitting there with little control over how it goes in terms of wait time or who's going to come in to see you. You may already not understand what's happening around you. You may have had similar experiences to that that are that are that went wrong that you're reliving. Um, and so we're just we're reducing so many secondary traumas, starting of course with not you know being handcuffed and put in a cruiser.
1: It so you know it's we're, we're coming into the. End of the calendar year, which means in my mind, I'm ramping up for the beginning of the next fiscal year. And you know, we can we've talked about it, right? The way the program is currently funded is a direct result of a decision that was made two years ago by the city council to move salary money from police officers to contracted mental health. Uh, And unfortunately, you know, they made the decision to move the money, but there was no direction about how to do that. as we were trying to go through the process, as the PD was trying to go through the process when you first submitted, we actually found out that in Massachusetts we can't do it. Right? We can't do it the way that we thought we were going to do it, because under that previous law, the Brain Center is our sole mental health provider, and the Brain Center is our sole liaison with the crisis team. If we had, if we had employed you directly we would have been adding an additional layer. You could have co-responded with us, but you couldn't have talked to the crisis team. So uh, it essentially would have been slowing the process down, not speeding it up. So we figured it out. I have to, I have to thank the Brian Center for their willingness to be agile and change the model. Um, but you know, the, the nice part about the way we did that is now we have a funding mechanism in place if we can actually find more people who are willing to do the work We can actually add more resources we built that out so that it can be expanded um, But you know, there's there's all kinds of um, There's all kinds of narratives associated with police dealing with the mentally ill And I know when we came back from one of those budget hearings. So this was about two years ago and uh, ironically We were kind of in the the aftermath of the budget hearing, and the department was out in the field dealing with a person in crisis. And it wasn't a low-level, like, we're going to keep this person and we're going to treat them in the field. It was, uh, this person is trying to actively kill themselves. We have to do something in the moment right now to protect them. And they de-escalated it. They had to use a force option to de-escalate it, but they got them the help they needed and i remember walking back in and they had just cleared the scene and Mr. Collins was standing there i was like hey that was just across the street and they told me that you should have been able to handle that alone you going on that call without us and he just <laughs> left. He's like i'm not going on that call without you like there's somebody out there with a weapon try to kill themselves send a social worker it, that that sounds really good in concept right but it's the integration of the two capabilities that makes it work um we used to, so the lieutenant and I ran together on the special response team for a number of years. And I remember the day that I had to make this decision. We would go out on people in crisis. And, and if the team was going, it was bad. They were barricade. And so we would go out on people in crisis. And the initial decision when we when we made entry, went and got them, brought them back out, bundled them and turned them over to the ambulances, we would 12 them. And so we would 12 them. And I remember... I don't know if you were on the team yet, Gary. We took the same patient in custody three times in 72 hours. Three team activations to go get the same patient because we kept 12-ing this patient, and they kept releasing the patient before we finished the after-action report. The patient was suicidal, but not suicidal to the point where they were like, yeah, we're going to put her up on, on three. So they just kept releasing her back out. The third time, I arrested her. So at least... If the hospital decides to release her, she'll come back with us. And then it, it, she didn't need to be arrested. She shouldn't have been arrested. We just ran out of options. Uh, but for years, going back up to Clarksburg, right? We, we got into it in the command post when we were up on the situation in Clarksburg because the state police were going to 12 from Clarksburg to North Adams Regional. And I intervened and said, no, we're going to arrest this person because we know what's going to happen. If we just 12 this person... They'll be back here before sunrise. We'll be back here before breakfast, right? We gotta do something. So by integrating mental health co-response into the system, we can make joint decisions, right? And so, if got, today, if we had to go do that, if we had to roll on a barricade, and the team went in and took somebody in custody, in the command post, I would be able to have a conversation with one of you. You would be able to have a conversation with the crisis team. And we'd say, look, there's two options: mm-hmm. they're going to Jones, or they're going to jail. Which one is the better outcome? And with you in the in the mix, the likelihood today, 2020 in Pittsfield is they're going to Jones, right? right? Um, and again, better for everybody.
0: So. Chief, you mentioned um, you know the the function of of mental health, how we dealt with it um, in team activations, and one thing that um, kind of came about after Richard started with um, with us was that on on activations where there's a barricade involved we would you know our one of our responses
1: is a negotiator yeah he would roll out with the negotiators and, and
0: Richard would go right in I don't know if you guys have have experienced that yet but um, Richard uh, would, would go right in with the negotiator and, and work with you know we have a, a a couple of negotiators that uh, within the department that you know we would call on and, and they would work together. And it, it was um, on you know a couple of occasions uh, that I was in the
1: command post, it worked really well. Significantly better outcomes. Yep. Yeah. So before I, we change gears and I talk a little bit about some of the in service I was at, I want to talk about another element of the co responder program that. Is not built into the program. Uh, it's not documented anywhere. But I talk about it all the time because you are co-located in the building. Yeah. You have a little little space carved out in the back of the roll call room, <laughs> and you're very busy. So you're not in that space all that frequently. But no. occasionally, when I'm out strolling through the building, I'll pop down there and see you. And it is not uncommon when I pop down there and I see you that there's an officer down there, or a sworn member of the department, or in some cases, a non-sworn member of the department. And they're just um, taking advantage of your presence, the fact that you're, you're, you're actually there. So I was at service, and I was talking about the department's continuum of care and all of the things that we, we try to provide to our people to take care of themselves and to take care of their families. And it's one thing for me, or a commander, or a supervisor, to look at somebody and say, "Hey, you know, that was a difficult call. You look like you're having a hard time. Here's the number for the EAP. Call them. Tell Will I said, you know, this is a command referral, and they might do it. And and you know, I'm not naive. I know that even if they do it, there's a chance that that what's gonna that's gonna transpire is, "Hi, this is Officer So and So from the Pittsburgh Police Department. My chief gave me this card and told me to call you. I called you. Thanks. Bye." And that'll be the extent of it, because it's a stranger on the other end of the phone. They don't know what the process is. They haven't been through it before. Um, that's one point of entry into mental health and resilience. That's a high hurdle to cross. As opposed to, hey, you know that was a tough call. Ariel or Tessa downstairs. Why don't you take a walk down? And you know, at this point in time, I don't even think the supervisors need to make that suggestion. If they come in off a hard call and you're there, they'll wander down. Um, you know, so... Having the ability for somebody to access, even if it's just an informal degree of intervention in real time, that's huge. That's huge for our people. Uh, and I think back, you know, over the course of my career, at the times where I wish that I could have unloaded something or shared something or debriefed something uh, with somebody who was who was trained to elicit a, a appropriate response and pull it out and you know taking advantage of that instead of some of the bad coping mechanisms or self destructive coping mechanisms that historically and traditionally we would rely on uh, it it could have completely altered the trajectory of my career and I have 100% confidence that there are some ex cops who would still be cops if they'd had access to that
4: I think I don't want to speak for, for tasks but I think that might be one of the things that we're most proud of is the relationships that we've built within the department um i have been absolutely just blown away at the level of compassion and kindness i have seen from our officers um and that is that is not lip service i'm i can be very critical of the system um and and to be able to provide some sort of support to these people that we, we just have such a, a deep respect for um, is I think, I don't want to talk for you, but one of the things we're, we're absolutely most proud of. Um, we couldn't do what we do without them. They have guided us and taught us. Um, and I, I just am incredibly humbled to work with them.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. You appreciate it. And I'm sure the officers appreciate it. For sure. All right, how much time we got, Lieutenant? Ten minutes. Yep. All right, so let's switch gears here briefly. Uh, this will this will lead back into uh, this conversation. So I was at Chiefs in Service. I think I've talked about this on the program before. Six years ago, so seven years. Six in services, so seven years because we didn't do it in twenty twenty. Uh, decision was made by the mass chiefs, municipal police training committee, mass major city chiefs. Uh, you know, way back when uh, in service topics would be announced and they would be pushed out to the chiefs, and the chiefs would give them to the trainers and say, Go train the people. And, you know, not me because I was in training and I love training, but it, it wasn't uncommon that chiefs wouldn't even then attend the training that they were pushing out to their people. And so jointly a decision was made to reverse that. And so now the MPTC develops the topics for upcoming in-service. And the first people in the Commonwealth who see them are the chiefs. And so we get together for two and a half, three days. Um, They roll the topics out. They present them to us. We identify any issues or concerns or, or questions we might have. The modifications are made or edits are made, and then they get rolled out. So it provides two opportunities. One is chiefs who feel strongly about training can actually take the train, the trainer, and provide the training, which I do on some topics. Or the chiefs then can talk to their officers about why this particular topic, or they can kind of you know spin spin the delivery so that the officers understand this isn't just the commonwealth dropping this on us. And so this week was the chiefs in service. And so I had uh, I had two unique opportunities on the first day of in-service. The first I was very, very excited about. This is, this has never happened. I was gonna teach the block on de-escalation and use of force, which I have done for the last several years. And they asked who I wanted to co-present with me. So the last time I did use of force, my co-presenter was my instructor trainer when I went through, Officer uh, Chuck Dachara of the Waltham Police Department. And Chuck's a load of fun and, and I think he he kind of brought the roof down, but he can be a little over the top, and I think he offended some people. <laughs> So I couldn't bring Chuck back. Uh, so I made the decision and I invited our training officer, Officer Nikki Gaynor, to co present with me. And so even though she was on scheduled time off, she drove up from the Cape and we spent a couple hours on Tuesday morning presenting de escalation and use of force to the Chiefs and she crushed it. She absolutely crushed it. I got so many like positive comments and statements. She just you know, she's a wealth of knowledge and she keeps it simple and she doesn't like overly complicated. Like, like getting briefed in by a lawyer right it's just calling it like it is and so we did that and then i rolled from that into um a panel discussion as a post commissioner and so i got to talk to my fellow chiefs about the last eight well six months really and the development of post and what we've done and answer a bunch of questions that they had uh, and i was honored to sit on that panel with the chair of the post commission judge margaret Henkel, our new executive director uh, executive director enrique zuniga and the attorney who's been serving as our outside counsel, lon povich and so that was really well received a kind of um took up the bulk of that day we had some legal updates and then uh the the following day um it, it was a, a lot of legal material uh we did a lot of stuff around mental health and and resiliency and then yesterday morning we had a briefing um from the pio Of the metro nashville police department and the assistant special agent in charge of the fbi who served as a pio following the 2020 christmas morning bombing that was both you know fascinating and horrifying and so i you know obviously with the work that we do for the team um we're familiar with kind of the after action reports of that but i hadn't you know, tons stuff going on at the time. And so I didn't really follow the story in real time. The the six Nashville officers who rolled out on that call and then started evacuating those apartments and got nearly everybody out before that thing detonated and went off. They did just, you know here angels on earth, heroes. And I had no idea how close two of them were. Uh, one of them literally shared and it was recorded he wasn't here but he said you know listen this is my truth I don't care if I offend you I heard the voice of God say turn around and he stepped back around the corner and had just taken one step behind a shielding wall when the device detonated uh, his partner describes seeing the flash of orange and then just seeing her partner thrown towards her uh, as as the back blast goes back behind him uh, and you know there was three hospital transports as a result of that explosion going off and all three of them were due to illness and pre-existing conditions. Nobody was injured by the blast because those six cops got everybody out of those adjoining apartment buildings. It's crazy. Wow.
0: That was the one where there, there was music playing? It was, the, the, the. Yeah, he
1: built a device in an RV and then he drove it in front of the AT&T building and it started playing music and giving an announcement yeah. and then it gave a three minute countdown and, and then it went off. Yeah. yeah Christmas morning about just after six thirty just in insanity, right, and you're listening to this agent and this cop talking. you're like we, what would we do mm. what what would we do right? I mean Nashville's a much bigger city, but um you know, what would happen if that was in Springfield right? We'd be involved if that- occurred in Springfield. What would we do on christmas day right um and the things you can't anticipate the the fbi p i o who lived in Nashville. Quarantining for COVID because her children were sick. Her backup three hours away. <laughs> Come on. Mm. So we've only got a couple minutes left. I'm not going to get into the details of this, but I, I do want to tie this back around the importance of our co responders and, and mental health for our personnel. One of the other presentations we had yesterday, and it, it's still weighing heavy. And i had heard this presentation before but they had done a lot of work on it and he's significantly gotten into more detail the i won't say what agency and i won't use his name but a police lieutenant who uh long long serving police lieutenant who his son was um had just been recruited he had just gotten accepted and he was going to join a neighboring police department and with no prior communication no indication to anybody in his family that anything was wrong just went off the grid one morning, and uh, the lieutenant, using some of his resources and you know some of his experience, just with this horrible pit in the bottom of his stomach, knowing that something was wrong, eventually tracked his son down, um, and found his son's car in a remote parking spot of the gym where his son trained, dead by his own hand. the The lieutenant was the first responder to his son's own suicide. Yeah. I, I. I that if that was me i'm done if that was me i am all done call it a day not never again not this guy nope he uh he gets up in front of police officers all over the country and tells the story about how he used the resources available to him to get back and that it is um it's preventable right with the right uh with the right tools in place and and the right resources it's preventable one of the things they shared with us that I had never heard before is um, a QPR uh, question I persuade it. Question persuade, refer uh, which you know essentially it's like community CPR for for the brain, so you're both nodding your head. you know what this <laughs> is? Um, this this is a project for the rest of the year. We're going to figure out how to do this um, but yeah it's it's a preventable. It's an epidemic of preventable violence. We, we can do better with this. We are just about out of time. Ladies, thank you for coming in and joining us this morning.
4: Thank you for having us.
1: It wasn't nearly as bad as you thought it was going to be, was it? No,
4: no, it's fine. We have, we, we have so much more to talk about. We can talk
1: so all day. That's great. We'll have you back. <laughs> Good. We, we do it every week. All right, Lieutenant, any final thoughts before we wrap up here?
0: No, it's a great show, great information, and I think it's a... Uh, you know it's something that, that our viewers and listeners don't get much of a a, a front seat on and, and you've done that for them today thank you
1: lieutenant plans for the weekend daughter's coming home from uh, school so uh do you have to go get her no <laughs> <laughs> that was a disaster last time
0: yeah that was uh, the whole covid thing uh, and then the thing left. happened with the
1: trailer right yeah that was a challenge too <laughs> the, the move-in yeah all right ladies plans for the weekend
4: i honestly forgot the weekend was coming that happens um. when
1: you work in the pd <laughs> yeah
4: i'll be at the station <laughs> sunday so surprise that's right it is friday yeah i think uh we're gonna be working
1: Yeah, I, uh, I trained monday before i left i missed training last night i'm gonna train tonight and oh, tomorrow and i am very very hopeful then I'm going to see some PPD members of our pilot program on the mats with me either tonight or tomorrow because we got 14 more cops training jiu-jitsu this month. So that's a show that we'll have to handle. To our viewers and listeners, thank you for tuning in this morning to another new episode of On Patrol with the PPD. It's uh, It's been great. Stand, stay tuned until next week for another new episode. Until then, be safe, be healthy, but most importantly, be kind. We're 10